The text for our sermon this morning is 2 Samuel 5. I'm going to read a selection of verses from the chapter, and they will be up here on the overhead. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also, in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. And David did so as the Lord commanded him, and he drove the Philistines back from Geba as far as Gezer. Okay, at this point, we'll call the kids to the front for their children's sermon. At long last, David has become king. Now we've learned before how David was, was really a picture for God's people of what Jesus is. When the people looked at David and his life, they were learning what Jesus would be like when he came. And there are three things our Bible story this morning teaches us. The first is that we see how much Jesus' life was like David's. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's where David was born. Jesus, like David, spent most of his youth in a small town. As great as people would discover them both to be one day, for a long time they lived as nobodies. David and Jesus both began their public lives, meaning when people first noticed them and began to follow them, it was because of a miracle of God's blessing. The little shepherd boy David killed the giant warrior Goliath. And when Jesus was baptized, God spoke from heaven so that everyone could hear. As soon as they were both noticed by the people, they were both sent by God into the wilderness to suffer trials and temptations. And even though they were both clearly chosen by God, many people resisted that. Ten of the families of Israel followed someone else as their king, even though they knew that God anointed David. Even after Jesus rose from the dead, his enemies still fought against his disciples. There are many things like this. The Bible is full of these things. It's a lot of fun to study, actually, to discover them. But the reason that God put all these connections in the Bible is so that we'll see Jesus. They're all like signs pointing us to Jesus. Now, you don't go to a sign and look at it and admire how shiny it is or how big or how bright yellow or red it is. You read it and then you follow it to where you're supposed to go. Well, the second thing that we see in our story is how much David was not like Jesus. The Bible tells us that after David became king, he took more women 
as wives. Now God's law commands that a man may only take one wife. The wicked kings of the sinful nations around Israel, they were proud and they wanted to show how rich and powerful they were. So they took many wives. And David's heart was tempted to this sin. I want to be great like the other kings are great. But he was forgetting that he wasn't king over just anybody. He was ruling God's people. And Jesus is the true king. And Jesus never, never disobeyed God's law. The Bible tells us about these sins of the great men and women of the Bible so that we don't forget that they were sinners like us. The one whose life we are supposed to follow is Jesus. Not David, not Abraham, not Daniel. And the third thing that our story shows us is how that Jesus rules over his people as king. Remember, David is a picture now. He was a real man, but his life was a picture lesson. And the first thing that David did when he became king was he defeated Israel's enemies. First, he defeated the Jebusites, who were strong warriors that lived in a city called Jerusalem. David beat them and took their city away from them and made it his own. And then David defeated the Philistines, the enemies who always gave God's people trouble. David made sure that his kingdom was safe and that all his people were cared for. This is a picture lesson to us of Jesus ruling from heaven. Jesus sits in heaven on his throne, ruling over everything as our king. When Jesus first went to heaven, he had 11 followers. And within a couple of months of him going to heaven, he had thousands of followers. Jesus' church grew and grew. And within 300 years, even the Roman Empire, the great world government that had arrested and killed Christians, had become Christian. Christ's gospel continued to spread to other nations. And here we are in Trip, South Dakota, in a country that didn't even exist when Jesus first went to heaven. And here we are living under his rule. He is our king and he protects us and defends us from his and our enemies. We'll pray and then you can return to your seats. God, who didst of old speak unto the fathers by the prophets and has spoken unto us in these last days by thy son, speak to us now in thy holy word. Make our hearts to be as good and prepared soil for the good seed of thy kingdom. Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. May the Holy Spirit be with us now as the spirit of light and life. May Christ be glorified in the preaching of his gospel this day. And may grace and peace be multiplied unto us all through the knowledge of thee and of Jesus our Lord, for his name's sake. Amen. Men are prone to get their priorities out of whack. In our text today, David is finally made king of all Israel, and I want you to notice how askew the church's priorities are. You see it in the reasons that they give for anointing David. First, they say, you're our kin. Yeah, well, that's always been the case. Even though Israel was a nation, it was really a family. David had always been their relative, so was Saul. Nothing had changed. Secondly, they acknowledged that David had long been a national hero. He was the one who slew Goliath, and he had faithfully served as a general in their army. I mean, when Saul wasn't chasing him all over the place. And thirdly, they say, The Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and rule over Israel. 
The last reason they gave should have been the first. Now, of course, they couldn't have given it as the first without condemning themselves. If it was the command of God, why were they so backward to carry it out? Why had they actively opposed it for seven long years? The elders didn't show proper regard to God's will. God's will should always be the first consideration. It's a great sin among many who name the name of Christ that they're willing to pay regard to God's will as one of many considerations, but not as the supreme one. While they are willing to take it into consideration, it's taken along with other considerations and not allowed to be the chief. Their faith has a place in their life, just not the first place. Well, let's ask an honest question. Can such service be acceptable to God? Will God accept second or third place in any man's heart? Will the God who commanded, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, happily resign himself to the second or third place of importance behind career, hobbies, entertainment, or something else? Well, I wanted to highlight that moral application first because our focus will be somewhere else. We're going to be flying at about 30,000 feet to get a big picture view of our text rather than analyze its contents in detail. This morning, I want to look at the resemblance between David and his greater son, Jesus. So our outline runs thus. First of all, similarity of history. We see that in verses 1 to 5. The dissimilarity in character, verses 6 through 16. And then his similarity in rule, 17 through 25. I want to draw your attention, the similarity of history, to the resemblance between David's life and Christ's. There is an entire field of theological study devoted to this subject. It's a vast field called typology. I bring this up all the time, how the Old Testament points to Christ. And in saying points to, I'm selling it short. Things like the temple, the altar of burnt offering, the sacrifices, the Ark of the Covenant, the Passover, they don't merely point to Christ. They prefigure Him. Abraham, Jacob, Moses, and David don't merely point to Christ. They prefigure Him. As I said, it is a vast field of study. But the important thing to remember is its purpose. God didn't just do this to display how clever He is. Now make no mistake, this really does display God's wisdom, but it is so much more than that. Speaking of the entire sacrificial system ordained by God through the ministry of Moses, Jesus says, Moses spoke of me. In Luke 24, Jesus claims that He is whom Moses, David, and the prophets were speaking of. And so, while typology is fun and it's a fascinating subject, its purpose is to prefigure Christ. It's easy to get sidetracked and wowed by all the connections, but the connections are not an end in themselves. They direct us to Christ. The Scripture often calls Jesus the Son of David. Now, that is a double signification. One, it means that the Christ would descend from David. And the significance of that is this. Since David was the king of God's people, Christ would be also. But secondly, Christ's right to rule does not derive from his biological descent from David. 
Jesus is king not because he's a direct descendant of David and thus legitimate heir to his throne. It's the other way around. David was placed on the throne to prefigure Christ so that when Christ came, we would know what to expect of him. That's the point of the sermon title. We recognize Jesus as David's son because he looks like him. The resemblance between David's early life and that of our Lord's is almost too obvious to point out. But I've long since learned that nothing goes without saying. And so let me show you some of the salient points of resemblance. Already done so in the children's sermon. Like David, Jesus spends his early years in the obscurity of a country village. Like David, Jesus enters public life after a conspicuous display of divine favor. David defeats Goliath. Jesus acknowledged that his baptism by the voice from heaven. Like David, soon after his call, Jesus is led into the wilderness to undergo hardship and temptation. Unlike David, Jesus defeats the enemy at every juncture. Like David, Jesus gathers to himself a small but loyal band of followers. David's men were renowned for their military feats, whereas Jesus' men were renowned for their spiritual feats. Like David, Jesus is concerned for the welfare of his family. When David was on the run, he committed his father and mother to the care of the king of Moab. When Jesus was on the cross, he committed the care of his mother to the apostle John. Likewise, in the shall we say, higher exercises of David's spirit, there is also much that resembles the experiences of Christ. The most convincing proof of this is the fact that most of the Psalms that we recognize as Messianic are founded in the experiences of David. Let that sink in for a minute. The Psalms which most clearly express the emotional life of our Lord are built upon the actual experiences of David. The Holy Spirit used David's life as the substrate for revealing the emotional life of our Lord. When you read the Gospels, you'll notice a relative lack of comment on what Jesus felt in his soul about this or that event. But when you read the Psalms, They're full of such expressions. Now, of course, there is an immeasurable distance between the experiences of a sinful man like David and the spotless Son of God. In the divinity of his person, the atoning efficacy of his death, and the glory of his resurrection, Jesus is high above any of the sons of men. Nevertheless, There must be some similarity between him and David because Jesus so often employed David's own words to express his own emotions. For instance, in Psalm 22, the words in which David pours out his desolation of spirit were the very words Jesus used to express his agony on the cross. And what's even more astounding is that when David wrote the words of verse 16, they pierced my hands and feet. Crucifixion as a form of execution hadn't even been invented yet. I mean, imagine someone 300 years ago describing the use of an electrical appliance. They could, there's no way they could have foreseen it. There's no way that David could have foreseen that the Persians would invent persecution or uh, crucifixion 700 years after his lifetime. And then that the Romans would borrow it from them and make it their standard form of execution. 
and that his greater son, Jesus, would be killed in this way, thus making the cross a virtual symbol of the faith. And even more amazing still, the very words Jesus spoke as he died when committing his soul to the Father were David's words, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Now usually the title of a hymn, you look in the hymnal, the title is the first line. It was the same for the ancient Israelites with the Psalms. They identified them by their first line, not so much by the number. So when Jesus cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was like he was saying, read Psalm 22. Anyone in earshot should have recognized it. Psalm 22 is the cry of an innocent sufferer whose hands and feet are nailed, whose body is tortured beyond belief, yet no bone is broken, over whose clothes the men cast lots, and who is mocked with the words, he trusted in the Lord, let him save him. All those resemblances are important. They're intentional. They're not mere coincidences. We're supposed to see these things and say, you look just like your father. The similarities or parallels in their histories are intended to show us the family resemblance. Incidentally, this teaches us by implication how important it is to know the contents of the Old Testament. How can you notice the parallels if you don't even know one whole side of the equation? Now, we've said a lot about the similarity, but our text shows us some rather painful dissimilarity. The dissimilarity highlights the fact that David was a mere type. Some of his actions are shameful, honestly. The Scripture neither hides them nor less does it excuse them. They're portrayed in all their naked hideousness to nauseate us at their sinfulness showing us that no mere man could be our Savior. Even the greatest men, the the famous saints, fail us. Now we must be clear, polygamy is and always has been a sin. It wasn't acceptable under the Old Testament. The Old Testament saints lived with a lot less light than we have, which may be partial explanation, but it's not an excuse. Creation is the norm. Jesus said, God made them male and female. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And the two shall be one flesh, so that they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. What God created, God ordained. We understand that God willed that marriage be between one man and one woman and that it be a lifelong inviolable union because when He created marriage, He created it as a union between one Adam and one Eve and He said, what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. God did not create Adam, place him in the garden, then give him three wives. God didn't create Eve and give her two husbands. God didn't create Adam and Steve. God didn't create Adam and Eve next to John and Marcia and then let Adam divorce Eve and marry Marcia. What God created is an expression of His will. Marriage is God's creation and therefore He defines what it is. And He defines it as a lifelong union between one man and one woman. Any other arrangement 
is sin, period, full stop. Just because the Bible tells us about people who committed the wicked sin of polygamy does not mean that they had the permission to commit it any more than the story of Peter denying Jesus grants us permission to deny Jesus. Now, I suspect that the mental Charlie horse, so to speak, for most people stems from an erroneous view of justification by faith alone. You see, we say that a man is justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law, but then we want to smuggle the works of the law in through the back door. Maybe a man can't attain salvation by works, but he can retain it by works. But you cannot have it both ways. You can't have salvation merited by Christ and then also merited by your good works. If your good works are needed in any capacity, Christ's work is defective at that point. People get instinctively nervous when they hear this. Well, isn't that a license to sin? And the Bible tells us that it is the only the righteousness of Christ that saves us. And we state that people agree, but then they mumble under their breath. Yeah, but you still got to fill in the blank. Our opponents have made this accusation from the earliest days of the church. If you tell people that their obedience doesn't earn anything, and that it's only Christ's obedience that saves them, they'll live like the devil. From the dawn of the Reformation, Rome made this accusation against us. Read the Romish rhetoric. This charge is thrown around again and again. Our catechism, which was composed in 1563, has questions specifically in answer to this objection. Question 62, but why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? Answer, because that the righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law. And also, our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. What? Do not our good works merit, which yet God will reward in this and a future life? This reward is of not of merit, but of grace. But doth not this doctrine make men careless and and profane? Answer, by no means. For it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth the fruits of thankfulness. Rome's argument was that if you tell people that the righteousness which saves them is Christ's righteousness, then they'll abuse this knowledge to sin with impunity. If a man rests solely in Jesus' righteousness, he will, by actual course of nature, live a careless and immoral life. Now, hopefully you've noticed that this is the exact same argument the Pharisees marshaled against Christ's apostles. In Romans 5, Paul says, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And the Pharisees misconstrued those words as if Paul were saying, hey, since God's grace abounds more than our sin, why don't we just all sin like crazy so we can get more grace? And that's a libel and a slander. And so Paul replies, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. God forbid. How can we who have died to sin still live any longer in it? Beloved, salvation is not just pardon for sin. It is much, much more. It's a work of God whereby a sinner is pardoned 
and his nature is renewed after God's image in true righteousness and holiness. The Spirit makes him sincerely willing and ready to live under God. In Romans 6, Paul asks, if you're dead to sin, how could you still live in it? Living in sin after you've died to it is like a prisoner not going home after he's been pardoned. Not leaving his cell wouldn't mean that he's not free. It would mean that he doesn't know what freedom is or he never really wanted it. Our catechism says that anyone implanted into Christ will bring forth the fruits of thankfulness. If a tree is a cherry tree, it'll produce cherries. It won't need to be coaxed, bribed, or threatened into it. It'll do so by nature. A person truly engrafted into Christ will by sheer force of nature bring forth fruit. The person who uses grace as a license for sin is no Christian at all. Scripture boldly asserts that those who willfully persist in sin were never elect in the first place. Purposely spraining your ankle so that you can test the effectiveness of an ankle brace It's not a mark of sanity. Using grace as a cover for sin is not a mark of conversion. Now the Bible paints the sins of God's people in dark and ugly colors so that we don't focus on the wrong things. David is not the ideal. His greater son is. That brings us to our third point, the similarity in rule. Again, one purpose the Bible has in exposing the deep sinfulness of David is to remind us that he's not an end in himself. He's merely a prefiguring. Lest we get too caught up in David's greatness, God exposes his fallenness. And in one way, the differences actually highlight the similarities even more. Again, the similarities, the resemblances are important They're not mere coincidences. We're supposed to see them and say, you look just like your father. However, there is a deeper resemblance in our text, and it's not so much between David's and Jesus' experiences as it is between the destinies of their respective kingdoms. Now, the most obvious feature here is the bitter opposition to their claims. Both David and Jesus were opposed by those whom might have been expected to warmly welcome them. It could with equal propriety be said of David as it was said of Jesus, he came unto his own and his own received him not. First, David is hunted nearly to death by Saul. And then after Saul's death, David's claims are resisted by most of the tribes. Likewise, in Jesus' lifetime, he's opposed by the scribes and Pharisees, and even after his resurrection, the Sanhedrin does their utmost to denounce his claims by persecuting his followers. Both David and Jesus endured hatred and opposition from those who knew that they were destined to reign. When Jesus rose from the dead, we see him exalted far above all the schemes of his enemies. And likewise, in our text, when David was acknowledged king by all Israel, we see him reach a similar standing, exalted above the schemes and plots of his enemies. And now that David is recognized as king, on what does he expend his energies? He defends and blesses his kingdom, obtains peace and prosperity for it, 
expels its enemies and secures the welfare of all His people. And this is what Jesus does for His church from His throne of ascended glory. David's conquest over Jerusalem and the Philistines is a foreshadowing of Christ's conquest of the world. When we see the gospel entering the Greco-Roman world through the ministry of Paul and overturning imperial Roman policy in about 300 years, we see the fulfillment of what David's conquests foreshadowed. David evicting the fearsome Jebusites from their stronghold and making it his own. That is not an end in itself. It is a prefiguring of Christ's conquest. Christ comes to a world that lay in wickedness. And though he was persecuted and killed, he triumphed over the world by his death. And for 2,000 years, his kingdom has spread. Christ's church is a stone cut without hands that demolishes the world's idols and becomes a mountain which fills the earth. Who would have ever imagined that a shepherd boy from Bethlehem would dispossess the Jebusites? That's certainly what they thought, right? That's what their taunt about the lame and the blind meant. They were saying, look, our lame and blind citizens could beat your greatest warriors. Who would have ever imagined that the adopted son of a carpenter would be the most recognized name in world history? It was as predictable that a shepherd boy turned king would overcome the Jebusites and Philistines as it was that the poor followers of a traveling Nazarene preacher would turn the world upside down. Christ's ascension is one of those doctrines that it gets some lip service, it's recited in the creed, but seldom if ever preached. David's victories over the Jebusites and the Philistines prefigure or foreshadow Christ's ascended reign. And therefore, there is much encouragement for us in our text. If David, once he established his kingdom, spared no effort to advance the welfare of his people, if he scattered blessings upon them from the storehouses under his command, how much more will Christ do the same for us? Has not Christ been placed far above all principality and power? Has not Christ been exalted above every name that is named and made head over all things for the church, which is His body? Rejoice then, O members of Christ's kingdom. Raise your eyes to the throne of glory and see how God has set His King on His holy hill of Zion. Be encouraged to tell Him of all your needs. Tell Him of all the troubles of His church. He has ascended on high and taken captivity captive and received gifts from men. Let us pray.